When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Champions League is back and the best teams in Europe will once again battle it out for the biggest prize in club football. Two-time winners Chelsea are not, sadly. Sterling in behind, can he finish it here? They're 14th in the Premier League with five points from five games, booed off by their own fans for the second time in as many weeks on Sunday. How can the big Chelsea project succeed when their fan base has almost been conditioned to be impatient? Are they actually playing better than their league position would suggest? And how long before Pochettino's Blues are back amongst Europe's elite? I'm Ayo Akimolere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. fans know <laughs> if you invest the type of you know the money that the people create in the in the media okay yes it's true but this is expectation if you don't win it's normally the fans are not happy but the circumstance the, what i can tell the fans is the circumstance that we cannot change the reality we cannot change Okay, let's jump into this. Joining me in the studio today are Chelsea writer Liam Toomey, editor Don Byfield, and also reporter Adam Crafton back in the studio once again. Liam, let's start with you on this one. Uh, Chelsea, probably not the greatest start. Only one one game in five so far in the Premier League this season. But a few boos on Sunday. Are you surprised by that? Not particularly when you consider the bigger context of what's going on. Because I think there's part of this which is last season is still in the system for the hardcore away supporters. But then there's also a bigger issue, I think, where we're going to talk a lot about projects, I think, in this podcast. And part of the thing about projects is everyone needs to be bought in. And Chelsea fans didn't sign up for any of this. I think a lot of them are still reckoning with the end of the Abramovich era. As far away ago as that seems to us now, there are still some unhealed wounds from that. They didn't sign up to these new owners. They didn't sign up to the raised prices around Stamford Bridge that we wrote about last week. And they didn't sign up to this kind of billion pound investment experiment that's going on with the squad, where it's all young players who may or may not become worth the fees that Chelsea have paid for them. So I think there's there's less patience than you would expect from the stands for all of those reasons. Mm. What's the situation with the prices? Sure. So we wrote last week on The Athletic that Bowley and Clear Lake have put up the price of a lot of things around Stamford Bridge, around the match day experience. So the program is up 50p. Every type of food and drink has, has basically gone up between 5 and 15%. Um, there have been other cutbacks and what the Chelsea Supporters Trust have termed penny-pinching measures like the removal of a long-standing coach subsidy, which limited the cost that a small number of away fans would pay for trips outside of London to £10 return. Mm. 
that's gone. That that was there, I think, since 2014, the Abramovich era. So all of these things are kind of deepening the sense of disconnect, I think, that the fans who are regularly at Stamford Bridge and regularly at these away games are feeling from the club right now. And that's being directed at the squad and what they're seeing on the pitch. Well, Nick Miller was also written his column yesterday, obviously, that... Um... Fans are conditioned, in essence, to 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 being impatient. Um, the idea that obviously years and years of success, um, and perhaps it's about just holding still. Really, um, most teams go through this kind of uh, flux sometimes. Don't you reckon, Dom? Well, they do. Yeah, I can see why Chelsea fans cherish the Abramovich era, but Chelsea weren't run as a business over those nineteen years um, of his ownership. They lost something like nine hundred grand a week. That isn't that isn't normal business practice. Not in successful businesses anyway. It brought a an enviable trophy haul, um, and there was a this sort of philosophy that you know set by the owner that that if a head coach or manager wasn't going to qualify for the Champions League, then they were out on their top. That was it. They were gone. That manifested itself in what appeared to be um, impatience. Head coaches would be appointed. You know, with this long-term vision, they would sit in their inaugural press conferences and tell the world that they were going to do this and that and they were going to impose this type of attacking play to keep the owner happy. I don't want to proclaim we're going to do this and we're going to do that, but in my instinct, my instinct to come to this job, and I think the instinct of Chelsea from above will always be that we are competitive when we start the season wanting to win. And then as soon as results sort of went awry around the autumn time, late autumn, um, we were sort of on this customary... <laughs> ticking clock, um, waiting for them to to get the boot in February, March time when they were eliminated from the Champions League and they were fifth or sixth in the table. That that happened how many times? Two, three times? AVB, um, Di Matteo in November. I mean it was I mean Ancelotti was a dead man walking for a long time, but the, the bad the bad moment that just went on and on and on. I think it was ten points from eleven league games in the middle of the season and from that moment on he was he was out. We knew he was going to go at the end of that campaign and it's that has that has been what this generation of Chelsea fans are used to. Brought success, but if the coach didn't deliver, then they were gone. But I think we also have to point out something that stands in contrast to this, really, is that often in the Abramovich era, the ownership acted before the fans really yeah. rebelled. Yeah. I don't remember Chelsea fans turning on too many coaches. It, the, the ones that they did stand out. Benitez, they never accepted from the start. Sarri. Sarri, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think Potter, in part, because he replaced Tuchel. But in general, if they feel a connection to a coach, I mean, Lampard lost every game of his caretaker spell last season and they they cheered his name at the final whistle every single time because it's more about the connection they feel at least with the fans in the stadium and I think what we're seeing right now the re the main reason for the booze is they don't feel connected to what's going on at Chelsea off the pitch or on it yeah I don't want to bring United back into this Adam I'm sorry don't roll your eyes at me but that disconnect's really evident obviously when fans are disgruntled with with one, the football that's played on the pitch, but also the, the, the manager. But could you also say that about Chelsea as well? Like the whole Bowley regime probably isn't something that fans are, are, are that afraid with. I, I don't know if Chelsea fans necessarily have recovered from the moment they got to last season where they just basically hated half the players, mm. which I think is probably where it ended up, right? Like you, you sometimes have those seasons where everything goes wrong to the extent you see the team, you're like, I oh, can't be bothered with him, can't be bothered with him. 
He's done nothing. We signed him, but he's not doing anything. Then we're going to sign another six players. I think there is an identity issue in terms of Chelsea fans don't really know this set of players yet. I think Chelsea fans don't really know this manager yet, apart from him being the guy who Tottenham fans like. I think the, I don't get the fans are against the ownership. I think they're just increasingly sceptical of it. And I think they're very wary of you know some of the decisions that have been made feeling like they're a bit of a laughing stock at times and that by extension transfers on to Chelsea fans because people take the mick out of Chelsea and then they feel they have to defend this thing that they're not really sure if it's going to work or not. Equally, like people keep saying, oh, you know, what's the planet Chelsea? Well, I think the planet Chelsea is, there is a planet Chelsea. Like it's really quite clear. Like their plan is to build a very, very young side, you know, invest in young talent on long-term contracts and see whether you can bring them together with a coach in Pochettino, you know, recruit players at a young age that you either sell on or they become fantastic players for the club. Like, I think that identity is really clear. It's just very unclear if it's going to work. Liam, do you think that's been communicated quite clearly, what that plan looks like? Uh, I think so. I think at least by us. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm talking in terms of the leadership, you know, This is who we are. This is why we've come here. This is what we want to do. We spoke about Brighton yesterday and there's a clear idea there and it feels like it's been communicated that, you know, we're just safeguarding this club. Everything we're doing at this moment in time is to try and safeguard. We're selling well, we're buying well, profits, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but but Brighton are like the nerd at university (laughs) that do their homework perfectly, hand everything in on time. They've brought their books six months in advance for next year. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Chelsea are like the lads going on a night out, getting in at three in the morning. Spending have, a million quid out on, in the yeah, West End. And yeah. Brighton are selling the answers for about <laughs> yeah, a million right? and, yeah, yeah. and Chelsea are doing it in a slightly more dr- dramatic way. Mm. But, you know, we sort of compare everyone to Brighton. But Chelsea, we're in such a different place, right? If you go back to Abramovich and we're coming into what they inherited there, it's not an excuse for everything that's happened since. But it's a whole... It, it wasn't an easy club to take over, I would say, at the same time. Just to your point, I, uh, I think there has been a, a lack of on-record communication from the new owners about the football strategy since they came in. I mean, Todd Bowley's spoken a couple of times at like business conferences and he's been mocked, basically, for what he said. And so maybe that has made them a bit more reluctant to talk publicly. We did have a, an interview done with the... Chelsea in-house media with Lawrence Stewart and Paul Wynn Stanley, which is the first time we've heard at length from any of them. That's beyond, the sporting directors. Yeah, the co-sporting directors beyond the kind of boilerplate quote you get when a, a signing's announced. And that was informative, if less than ideal, because it was a kind of by design, very soft focus conversation. So I think fans would probably appreciate a bit more communication from the, the major decision makers, given the fact that the decisions being made are so major. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the whole club has changed within the space of a year. But I do think over time, as Adam says, it's become very clear what they're trying to do. Just on on the plan that Adam's has detailed there, which does seem to be the strategy, the thing that fascinates me is there's an element of buy young, develop and sell, which is what actually what Brighton do as well. But but with, in Chelsea's case, who do they sell to? There's no money really out there other than in the Premier League. And they're not, they're surely not building these players up to sell to Manchester City. I know what you mean, I, yeah. I find that slightly baffling, but... Well, they've already shown they're prepared to sell to domestic rivals if they feel internally that they are upgrading the position with who they bring in. 
they are prepared to take much bigger swings in terms of selling a Mason Mount or a Kai Havertz than the old ownership, I think, were very reluctant on the whole. I mean, you had notable exceptions, Nemanja Matic and people like that, but they felt they'd had the best years of, mm. of someone like Nemanja Matic, whereas these owners are selling players in their mid-20s in some cases to domestic I, rivals. I, th I think that's the other identity issue that, that fans have felt this summer. You know, you're buying some very, very young players, but you're also letting go really quite talented academy products, right? Mm. And Chelsea fans, like all fans, you know, no, no club is unique in this, like to watch players that have been brought through by their own club. And the idea that you sort of trade them out to trade people in from other clubs that you're not even sure yet if they're going to be as good, feel... I understand why Chelsea fans are uncertain about that because it starts to feel as though you're being dislocated in some way from your club, rightly or wrongly. Like someone like Lewis Hall, or did he play 10, 15 games at the end of last yeah. season? Academy player of the year. Academy Not player sure. of the year. It looked quite promising. Instead of him being back up, you're kind of stuck with Mark Cucurella, who it's probably fair to say is pretty unpopular among the fan base after a really difficult first year at Brighton. Is that the best thing for the club long term? You know, okay, you've taken 30 million now. Was it 30 million for Lewis Hall? They've basically locked in around... 28 to 30 million yeah. for next year. So they're already projecting forward to the transfer fees they right. have to service then. So, so 28 million, which which may, because he's such a young player with so little ex first team experience, it may turn out to be an amazing deal because who knows what he'll be in five years. Equally, it might turn out to be, we just let him go to balance the book so we could sign someone that we don't even rate. And, and I think that's where Chelsea fans are just like, we like the idea, but the execution isn't bearing out at the moment evidentially in terms of points. And you've got a muddled situation that was demonstrated this weekend again where an academy gra graduate in Conor Gallagher who is pretty much throughout the summer we've been waiting for somebody to submit an offer that Chelsea would accept. He was and, captain, right? And he, he was captain. captain. That was, he was captain yeah. on the day. And and for the second time this season ahead of Thiago Silva, Thiago Silva. in the film, which is, which is, does one tally with the other on that? It feels a bit I think that's mixed. just to like add a couple of million onto his value. He's captain Chelsea. <laughs> we'll get a couple more zeros in January. Say yes, can clip it up. <laughs> I think it's probably a sign that there's a there's a difference in the way Chelsea are approaching the Conor Gallagher situation and the way Maurizio Pochettino is approaching it. You, you, at every turn, you've seen how much Pochettino values Gallagher, at least so far. We have to caveat this with, with the fact that Chelsea have, I believe, 12 players out I mean, injured, injuries including ridiculous. several midfielders. Yeah. So the pecking order who's, may change. Who's injured? Because I, I forget who's contracted Ka to Chelsea, <laughs> to be honest, these days. Well, Caicedo is now sidelined. We don't think for very long, but he's out for a little while. Romeo Lavia, Lavia. as well, who hasn't played a minute for Chelsea yet. <laughs> Romeo Lavia, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he costs a, a fair amount of money, shall we say. So... When all of the midfielders are fit, it's less clear where Gallagher will sit in Pochettino's eventual. I'm not even sure Pochettino knows yet. All we can say is right now and so far, he's been pretty critical to the team that's been out on the pitch. You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Ayo Akinwalere. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. 
Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Well, let's move this on because let's talk about this this idea of a project talk about Brighton, we talk about Chelsea, we could talk about Arsenal, we talk about various teams, even PSG in, in, in Europe. And I'll, I'd like to come to that in just a second. But Dom, just break it down, what these sort of footballing projects, what, is it, what do we mean when we say footballing project? I was thinking about this before. I, I suppose it's, it's a, a managerial philosophy, tactical philosophy, a style of play. But it may also mean the revamp of a team, a rejuvenation of a squad and, you know, bringing in younger players and and, and starting the next cycle of a team's existence. I, mean, I think the first time I, it sort of became the, the parlance at, at, at Chelsea in, in, while I've been covering them was when Andre Villas-Barras came in in about 2011. And he, he mentioned it quite a lot in, in that autumn of 2011. Project was his sort of buzzword, go-to word. And it, it sort of, it was a bit of a David Brentism. It, was, it, it sort of became something to beat him with over the course of that season when it all started unraveling in the January, February time, because just it just became nonsense. I mean, he brought in, I mean, there were five players in the summer of 2011, only two of which, Juan Mata and Raul Moraes, which were classed as first team players. The others were all sort of young and like Lukaku joined and, and uh, Oriol Romeo joined and people like that. They were there for the future. Um, but it was almost like the club were asking him to, to conduct a, a revamp of a what was an aging squad. I mean that that 2012 Champions League final overseen by Di Matteo, but that was the swan song of a great Chelsea team. But you know, undertake your revamp of the team with your high energy footballing style. But we're only going to give you two senior players in which to do it, uh, and you're going to have to work with all the lads that have been playing one way in the years previously. So there you go. You got completely. The ownership saying one thing and the manager wanting to do something completely different. It, ha- it has to, if, it's, if this project, this horrible term is going to work, then everybody's got to be singing from the same hymn sheet. And I mean, that goes back to Liam's point there. Are Chelsea's current owners, if you look at the Gallagher situation just to start, are they are they and Pochettino working in, in, uh, in tandem here? P- people usually use the term project when they're either not winning or fearing that they won't be winning for a while. Like seriously, like, I think that's the that truth. Kicked of it, in right? this weekend, actually, or the last right? couple of weeks. You're selling today. hope. Mm. Yeah, you're you know you're selling an idea because you can't sell something more tangible. Yeah. Even you know people initially with when Postecoglou first came to Tottenham were talking Tottenham need a project because that was basically an admission Tottenham aren't going to win. Right, they're not going to win a title. They're not going to win a Premier League title. So therefore, they need something to believe in that goes beyond what we consider to be the most tangible thing, which is results or medals and therefore an idea. And that's what 
Chelsea are trying to sell at the moment because ultimately you, you don't need a project if you're winning. Mm. You know, no one really talks about an Arsenal project now mm. because they believe they can actually win something. So I, I think that's why people use the word project. It's, a, it's, it's what people feel they need when there's nothing to show. It's a question though. Is it easier to market these quote-unquote projects with teams like Brentford, like Brighton, um, as opposed to teams like PSG, Manchester United, you've got, you know, legendary status in the game, you know. Um, PSG, for instance, you know, well, a bit of a shambles of a project. A lot of money thrown at it, but very little shown in the, in the areas that you really want to see it, which would be someone like the Champions League. Some big, big players have come through that team. PSG have had several projects, you know, over the last few years, but the, the, the aim has always been to win the Champions League and they've not done it. And now they're, you know, they're sort of resetting again. So it's another project. And, and they are getting a little bit more patience from the fans as a result of that. And I think Chelsea is interesting because I'm a little bit surprised by the, by the source of reaction on Sunday in that, you know, they'd, they'd played pretty well against Liverpool in their first game. So they beat, beat Luton. Um, who else? They put? Nottingham Forest was the bad one, right? And they lost the way at West Ham. West Ham and well, the West Ham one, I think most people felt they'd played all right. But I think part of the issue with it is the problems were so obvious before the season started. You're not very good in both boxes. You can't, def- you know, you're, you're probably a, a world-class centre defender short despite signing like six of them. And don't have an obvious world-class goalkeeper either. Don't have a world-class goalkeeper though. Actually, the one they've signed has been okay yeah, so far. He's Sanchez. Been okay. Yeah. But fundamentally, they don't have a striker and they can't score goals last season. So I think people are looking at it and just being like, how can you have this brilliant project, spending all this money, but be so myopic to what the biggest issue was? Well, and I think it means as well, in terms of what they've seen on the pitch so far, that that Chelsea are not only failing in, in ways that are familiar to people who watched last season, but they're also failing in pretty much the most frustrating way it is possible to fail in football, which is to spend a lot of money, but be consistently frustrated by defensive teams and make mistakes that give away points. Mm. No, it feels like that that viscerally infuriates fans more All than, more than anything else. And they've thrown a load of players in together. They have, yeah. And a new head coach coming in and we're just expecting them all to gel overnight, which doesn't... Also, players that have never played in the Premier League, Jackson, he's yeah. still finding his yeah. feet fundamentally. I mean, Mudrick, that's a, it's a whole other podcast, really, but you're asking a manager who's been out of the Premier League also for a little bit of time to yeah. come back into the Premier League, to hit the ground running with players that are still getting to know each other. Well, what, and you've what, got what do you want in, to do in, in entire, this mad league? entire team, a very good team, potentially, injured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this is the cognitive dissonance that's at play because... Base, even though some of these That's players, the <laughs> <laughs> <I'm free. laughs> even so, even though some of these players were signed six months ago, this is basically the the start of the project, as it were, um, is this season because it's a brand new coach, it's a brand new team, it's almost an entirely brand new squad. But at the same time, you're asking the fans who've been watching you for years and years and years to just wipe their memories of everything that they saw and felt last season. And I think that's quite difficult for people to do on a human level, even if logically you think about it. And yeah, Chelsea are going to take a bit of time to actually look like a proper football team and not just a collection of footballers. That's made me laugh all this about last season. <laughs> My own club has had... <laughs> 
four seasons better than Chelsea's or something ever in our history than last season. Happiness is a function of expectation. That's the quote card. That's the quote card. That's your quote card for today. Right, I'll tell you what, contrary to what we actually say in our tactics writer, Michael Cox is pretty well known for his, what, unique perspective on all things football. According to an article he's written today on The Athletic, Chelsea are actually playing pretty well. Sterling with the touch. Jackson looking for it. They're trying to bundle it in there. Cole's in there. After their summer of lavish spending, it feels like a lot of people would really enjoy it if Chelsea were going through a bit of a crisis at the start of the campaign. And the results haven't been good. Chelsea have only won one match so far. That was at home to Luton, who were bottom of the table, so maybe their easiest fixture of the season. But actually, when you look at the performances, Chelsea have been a lot better than the results would suggest. The defeat at home to Nottingham Forest is a good example. OK, they lost 1-0 at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea created so many chances in that game. Gallagher takes it on! They only really allowed Forest one chance. Forest took that. I think sometimes you have to accept that the result was not necessarily a good reflection of the performance. And the underlying numbers back that up. In defensive terms, in terms of expected goals, only Manchester City and Arsenal have considered fewer chances. And going forward, Chelsea are fifth in expected goals terms. City way out in front. Brighton are up there in second place. And Tottenham and Villa just ahead of Chelsea. Maybe the one area for improvement is the midfield. I thought against Bournemouth, Enzo Fernandes was very high, couldn't really contribute to build-up play. I think Maurizio Pochettino needs to find the best position for him. I think it's probably a little bit deeper than he played against Bournemouth. But there was a positive in terms of the performance from Leslie Ugochukwu, who played the holding role he was in for Moises Caicedo, who hasn't made the best start to life at Chelsea. And he showed great authority on the ball, really comfortable receiving it under pressure, playing forward. He looks a really, really quality player. So, results not that good so far, but the performances, I think, have been pretty positive so far for Mauricio Pochettino. Yeah, I read that article. I thought it was really fascinating. Um, I'm not going to go through all the stats, but he basically said, you know, Chelsea's defence is solid. Their midfield probably needs a, a couple of tweaks. Their attackers are on the same wavelength. They're just lacking the smaller details. Like scoring. I mean, that's a big, big detail, yeah. I mean, yeah, and, and you could see it particularly in the last couple of games. There's There there are a lot of bad decisions going on in the final third and over-hit, under-hit passes, players passing up shots when they should be taking them. Mm. Um, confidence. Confidence. And in the case of Nicholas Jackson, he's, he's had some horrendous misses. Mm. He's been getting into some excellent positions, but he's been missing some chances that he should score and maybe will score in time, but he's 22 and... Early in he's, his Premier League career. He struck me. I think I said, I might have said this on here like two weeks ago. He struck me as a player that will play really well against some of the bigger sides in the division, be a proper handful, really competitive, mm -hmm. but doesn't strike me as yet being that person that's going to break down a smaller side. Mm -hmm. And that's really what Chelsea need from yeah. a centre forward at the moment. They don't need to... The problem Chelsea have is they have to finish in the top five. Right, like they can't have an experimental yeah. finish to this season, right? Like you've spent so much money, you have to get back in the Champions League, um, despite everything the owners may say about sort of their plans to drive commercial revenues. I mean, they don't have a shirt sponsor yet, yeah. so you know they, they have to get that revenue right. And that, that's where I have like 
because there's part of me that actually really admires what Chelsea have done, right? They've basically come in and thought, everyone's doing football a certain way. And you can either look at what they've done next as they're arrogant, they're naive, they're all of that kind of thing. Or you can look at it and think, actually, well, they're disruptors and don't want to sort of turn into like Diary of a CEO <laughs> podcast. But like, you know, they've gone in with a different idea, a different perspective, with a different business structure in terms of how you recruit players, the age at which you recruit players. And I think there's something to be said for that, that, you know, the, the risk that they've taken, the way that they feel they can make something work. But there are factors that, that will judge it before, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have three years to judge it. Mm. And it just doesn't work like that because you have stakeholders like fans that go to a game um, who love being called stakeholders um, <laughs> <laughs> who are going to express how they feel. And you have a pressure that builds, as we saw in January, right? They'd had a poor first half of the season. They had a plan. Graham Potter was the plan for like, what, five, six years. And then, you know, everyone has a plan until you lose 4-1 away to Brighton and it punches you in the face and the plan starts to unravel and you have to change it. And then, you know, I think part of the reason they did Mudrick for so much money in January was the ownership feeling, shit, we need to do something, right? To show we're in control of this situation. We're going to react and we're going to be strong. And then, you you know, they kept doing it. Casado, Lavia, some of these players will turn out to be fantastic. But they're just, I don't know. It's, it, football is a very hard industry to have a fantastic plan in and hope it comes off. And it's why it is easier for a Brighton or a Brentford where you don't have to win, right? Like you have to avoid the trap door, which is, which is not easy, but you don't have to be the best. Whereas Chelsea the standard they've set over the past 20 years is we expect to be the best. And to be the best means being better than a bloody good Liverpool team and an amazing Man City team. And unfortunately for Chelsea at the moment, trying to get into the top half of the table. So they're quite a long way off it. And it's a really difficult thing, I think, for people to have patience with. Isn't that back to my sort of original point about, I mean, can, can you even do it in the Premier League because the stakes are so high and saying so this is a three-year project, just hold still Chelsea fans. You know, we, we, we're figuring it out. We've got the money, but just give us some time because this is a long-term project. Can you even do that in the Premier League with a team like Chelsea? I think maybe you can do it, but there's going to be pain along the way and you have to be prepared to stomach that pain. Um but are fans ready for that? Back to our conversation about impatience with fans. I don't know if the if the Chelsea fans are uh, ready for that. Again, partly because, as I said earlier, the a lot of them, as strange as you might think this is, are are still not really mentally over the Abramovich era and the way the club was run and the and just the completely different culture so that was around Stamford Bridge at the time. Not necessarily, because there are other clubs that are used to winning. Um, but I think they were just used to there not really being transitions. You know, the club would kind of retool every summer to attack the next season. Um, and it would some some years it would really go wrong, but there would usually be a change. Um, whereas this time it's it all the change has come at once and now there's just this mess that hasn't really settled yet. Um and it's it's gonna there's no shortcutting the time that it will need to settle, but that doesn't do anything for the things that fans are feeling emotionally. We we spoke on Straight Out of Cobham a few times about we we thought that that team, the Chelsea team that won the Champions League under Tuchel, was probably at the end of a cycle there as well, um, and needed 
a revamp, complete, a complete revamp. But would you now argue that, because it's been a revolution under under Bowley Clearlake, would it have been better to do it as an evolution then? I think it could have been because while some aspects of that team were kind of at the end of their cycle, certainly the midfield, um, and they had a couple of defenders with the contracts running down, there were also young players like the ones they've sold this summer, like Mount Havertz, who were expected to be pillars yeah. of a, a really competitive Chelsea team for a few years. So you didn't have to rip everything out, but that's what they've done. That's where... That's where we are now with Chelsea. So you have all these all these new players. Some of them already look really talented. I mean, I think Enzo Fernandez has been broadly excellent. Um, and the, it feels like the, he's doing too much, though. Yeah. Well, the, well, the weird thing is, last season they had to play him too deep because he was replacing Jorginho. This season they're almost playing him too high up because they've lost all the players that would normally be number tens. So that balance hasn't been found yet, and it may not be found until the injuries ease. And it, I mean, it's worth like we were just looking before, before we recorded about who Chelsea have actually beaten in the Premier League this yeah. this calendar year or since the World Cup, and I think what Bournemouth twice, but couldn't, clearly couldn't beat them on third time on Sunday. Uh, Luton, Ev uh, not Everton, Leicester and Leeds, Leicester, Leicester, Leeds, and Crystal Palace. Yeah, that's it. Like that is stag like what half of those teams have either been just promoted or were relegated. So you can understand if you are one of those fans who travels every week, who pays every week to go to those games with, you know, and a lot of those games that Chelsea haven't won, it's not like you play in Man City every week, right? There's an expectation of a level of quality and level of competing that was very absent for the second half last season. So you can understand how that starts to really linger. Um, I don't think they've sort of been spoiled in that sense. And also the other thing that Chelsea now have, which is both a blessing and a curse, is they're mostly going to have one game a week. So that opportunity to redeem yourself takes longer to come around. And if you miss it, as they have done over the last couple of weeks, it just builds up. Mm -hmm. It just builds up, it builds up. And those weeks, which when you at the start of the season, you think, oh, that's going to be really good because Pochettino will have time on the training ground and he'll mm -hmm. sort stuff out, it actually starts to become a bit more, oh God, we're stuck with him on the training ground all week. Are you right? saying that level of expectation is higher now because... They don't have all the other distractions. I think so, because there's one game a week and it's the main event, right? Mm. And people travel to that game and think, well, it's all they've got to prepare for all week. Like, why aren't they better? I think the, the the record that Adam went through there as well also goes back to what you were saying, Ayo, about can you do this in the Premier League? In 2023, the, the Premier League is is the closest thing we have in this sport to a Super League. Like In terms of the players that even the, the clubs near the bottom are able to take off some of the best clubs in Europe, and aside from maybe Luton this year or maybe Sheffield United, everyone else is capable of beating you on a given weekend if you don't know exactly what you're doing. And Chelsea clearly don't know what exactly what they're doing yet. Even if I, I think there is clear coaching coming from Pochettino, but they just don't, it's not automatic. Mm. And I think even you see with the top teams that have succeeded in the last few years, they've succeeded because their play is automatic. Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal, they're, they're machines at this point in, in terms of their roles on the pitch, the way they can move opponents around. And if you're not that fluid and seamless, you cannot out-talent teams in the Premier League in 2023 because they've all got talent. I wrote this after the, the Forest game. Like someone like Anthony Alanga, who scored the winning goal, he's played in Premier League, Champions League games for Manchester United and impacted those games. There's not actually that much of a talent difference between him and a Mikhailo Mudrik or an Onimadoeki. 
leave aside the the price tags, which I know no one ever does, but like the talent differences between the top teams and the rest are actually quite marginal. Where you get the advantage is from building a machine, a seamless machine. How, how did Pochettino take the booing on Sunday? Yeah, Simon Johnson asked him about it after the game and he launched into quite a long answer as Pochettino often does uh, in those situations. And he initially said he hadn't heard it, but then he gave quite a kind of impassioned answer, which built upon some of the things he's he's been saying in the last couple of weeks. He's gone from striking a tone in pre-season of we're Chelsea, we have to win, there's no excuses, mm-hmm. to beginning to talk more about a project, a process, citing the lengthy injury list. And I don't know if if you're being harsh, you say he's making excuses, the thing that he said he wouldn't do. But I think he would probably say he's just explaining why this might take a little bit longer than people initially envisioned. And that's where he is at the moment. Let's just then indulge Michael Cox's article on Chelsea actually playing quite well, despite what the stats might say. Um can we say we are beginning to see, it's only been five games, of course, in the Premier League. Can we say we're beginning to see what he's trying to do at Chelsea? Is it still too early to tell? No, I think I think we can see some some broad strokes. I could see a fair bit of it in pre-season when I was out in the US. And I think without making an excuse, I think we have to note that what he was doing in pre-season is not really what he's doing now because he's... He lost Christopher Nkunku in the final preseason match and a lot of Chelsea's attacking play went through him and the positions that he took up. And then, I know this sounds silly because he's barely played any games for Chelsea, but Carney Chukwemeka, who started the season really well, was in that number 10 role kind of linking things in the final third in front of Enzo. And then he got gets injured at West Ham and they've they've struggled to regain that attacking balance and fluency since. It's all, He's had to rejig the attack twice in the space of three or four weeks and as much as they've missed chances they could score I think that's also been a factor in that they've had to he's had to reimagine things more in the attacking sense than the defensive sense let's finish on this one then what what does I think you alluded to it earlier Adam what what does what does success then look like for Chelsea this season it has to be a top five finish surely maybe a decent cup run maybe but I mean it's weird saying that about a team that's been not top for so long, but what what does that look like? Yeah, I mean Chelsea haven't been title contenders for quite a long time, mm. to be honest. Like, I mean, what was it, Conte, the last one? Yeah, since twenty seventeen when they won it. Yeah. yeah, right. So, but they have to be in the Champions League, like not just from a footballing fans' perspective, but I think from a financial perspective, given what they've invested, if they're going to be, you know, if the clear lake claims seems to be arguing, you know, we can run this club sustainably, that's going to require. Champions League football, we know from experience that if you're in the Europa League, it always becomes harder to get back into the Champions League the next season. You know, there's five places up for grabs. Chelsea, Chelsea with what they've spent and the quality in their squad should should be in it. You, you look at kind of starts the season, Newcastle have had and Man United have had. You know, you would think there'd be a levelling off for Spurs at some point just in terms of like the goals they've lost from Harry Kane. So... You know, kind of beyond Arsenal, Liverpool, Man City, those places are there if you can put a run together. But, you know, you can't can't keep dropping points against Forest and Bournemouth and everyone else. No, I agree with Adam. I mean, Champions League qualification has to be the the goal. It just, I don't know, it feels a bit, in the context of previous years, and and let's let's be honest, Bowley Clear Lake are haunted by Chelsea's recent successful history. 
that is that is the biggest problem. I mean, even if you, to the extent that the last time they endured something vaguely akin to a bad season back in 2015-16, and they got into that season as champions, and the following season they were champions. That's not going to happen this time around after their 12th highest finish last last term. I don't. Know, I think probably in in twenty odd years, whatever it is, fifteen years covering Chelsea, I, I, I've become a bit of a stuck record on this. And I've always argued that coaches need time. They need to be able to work with the players. They need to be able to get their ideas over. And, and now, and every time consistently under Abramovich, I was proved wrong. It wasn't that. I think possibly this time I'll prove right. He does need time if it's going to work. What will fans then expect, Liam? What what would appease this impatient fan base? I think they want to see a functional team sooner rather than later. They want to see goals. They want to see some some excitement because they've been so starved of that in Chelsea's football over the last three years, I would say. Pretty much, well, about six months after they won the, the Champions League, it ended. <laughs> and it's been pretty bleak to watch ever since. But as much as the, the margin for error on a week-to-week basis, I think has never been slimmer in the Premier League, the margin for error in terms of the league table as, as Adam says, has never been greater to get into the Champions League. Fifth will get you there. So there really are no excuses for what Chelsea have spent, what they've invested in this project. I think they have to get there. Otherwise, there will be some difficult decisions that Bowley and Clear Lake have to make next summer if they don't have that revenue. But the fans, I think, just want to see Chelsea become a relevant team again that is actually good to watch occasionally. All right, let's leave it there. Liam, Don. Adam, thanks so much for your time. Don't forget you can sign up to The Athletic today for a limited time offer of just £1 a month for 12 months at theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to The Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. The Athletic.